our gracious Father, please help us. We are weak when we should be strong. We doubt when we should be full of faith. So often we dwell in the foothills of the mountains when we should be halfway up. But by your grace, you love us and you strengthen us. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word right now, that your work would be done in us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to convict us, that we would reflect Christ more fully in our lives and that we would be grown in his likeness that we would progress in our sanctification by your grace and by your work in us. So please, may your Holy Spirit give us understanding that we may be changed by your word for Christ's glory and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. We'll be looking at John chapter 1, verse 14 today. My goal was uh, to get to verse 18. And uh, as I got to about halfway through writing it, I said, there is just no way because I haven't even got uh, the tip of the iceberg yet. This past week, um, for those of us who, who care about theology, for those of us who care about what people know and what people understand about God. We were given something of what you might consider to be a wake-up call in regards to the condition of the Christian church in our country. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, if you're familiar with it, that was the ministry that was founded by R.C. Sproul. They released the results of a survey um, this, this survey was conducted uh, with self-professing Christians, and as I and, and so many others poured over the results f- for myself, what I wondered is if just for a second I felt the same way that a doctor feels when he gets the results of a test and he realizes that the patient is on the verge of death unless he does something very quickly. Now, of course, God is the one who's the great physician, And I can't change hearts. Only God can change hearts. Only God can bring about revival. Or not. If he chooses not to. He's sovereign either way. He can bless or he can curse. He can give or he can take back. He's sovereign over it all. But the way that he brings about revival is through the preaching of his word and the proclamation of the gospel. And he has ordained in his wisdom that that would be done through his servants. And that is where I come in. And that's where you come in. Make no mistake about it. If you are in Christ, this is also where you personally come in if you are in Christ. So let me share the diagnostics of this survey with you. Again, the survey was done with people who say they are Christians. Kind of like the President of the United States every year does a, uh, a State of the Union address to talk about where our country stands on, on various issues. Uh, this study is titled The State of Theology. And right out of the gate, uh, let me just warn you that the results are not good. Those surveyed were asked whether they agree, agreed or disagreed with the following statement. Quote, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Agree or disagree? of Christians agree that most people are good by nature. In other words, 52% of people who claim to be Christians disagree with what God says about the human condition, that none is good, that all have sinned. This appears to be a denial that man is inherently sinful. That would be a a denial of at least the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, But it could go as far as Pelagianism. If you're not familiar with Pelagianism, it's the idea that man is morally neutral, not fallen, but not ascended. We're just somewhere in between, and we have uh, the ability to choose either way. Uh, But this is 
certainly not even the greatest of our concerns that are revealed in this test. Uh, Those surveyed were asked whether they agreed or disagreed with another statement. Quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That should be a given. 51% agreed. Which means that 51% don't agree with Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. 51%. More than half. But it gets worse. For the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Who believes that, by the way? Who, who, what, what religion or what cult believes that? Uh, Mormonism does believe that, that Jesus was created, but Jehovah's Witnesses uh, also. So, I mean, we're talking a cult-like view of Christ here. For the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, 78% agree. And this is absolutely tragic. I mean, let's put it this way. If if you have a brain tumor and the doctor tells you that you are 78% incapacitated by this brain tumor, how hopeful are you? I mean, this is tragic. But let's let's see the implications of this uh, with startling clarity. If this survey is even remotely accurate, that means that almost 8 out of every 10 people you meet who claim to be Christians, on average, are not. 8 out of 10. Now, let's, let's say um, that the survey isn't even accurate, even though the number two years ago was still over 70%. But let's just say that it isn't accurate. Let's say that the right number is actually 50%. Does that make you feel any more hopeful for American Christianity. It's tragic. There is a severe lack of understanding about who Jesus even is and why he is qualified to serve as our substitute. But all this serves to demonstrate, friends, that the harvest is plentiful, but that the workers are few. We as God's people don't need to be caught up pursuing this or that endeavor, such as social justice or or political dominance or even having more worldly, more entertaining, more appealing ways of drawing people who are unchurched into the church. No, the lost are in the American church. And they claim to be Christians. No, we need to focus on the church. We need to see that Preaching the gospel is the main thing that we've been called to. And we must keep the main thing the main thing. It's very easy to be distracted. But we must keep the main thing the main thing. And the gospel is the main thing. Because there are multitudes of people in the American church who just have absolutely no idea, no clue who Jesus is. With that said, what an appropriate verse for us to come to today in God's word. It deals with the nature of Christ. It deals with the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, stepping down from his eternal throne in heaven and taking on flesh and dwelling among men. Now to the Greeks, remember that's who John's writing for here. To the Greeks, this would have been absolutely scandalous. The Gnostic philosophers of that time uh, were, were convinced that all physical material was inherently evil, that it could not be redeemed, that, that it was by nature uh, contrary to anything pure or good or holy. And only that which is spiritual, according to these Gnostic philosophers, could be good. And so the incarnation of Christ we have to understand, absolutely obliterates that idea that something material, something physical, must be inherently evil because the Lord Jesus Christ was anything but. He was pure, he was holy, he was righteous, and he dwelled in flesh. So today we'll be continuing our study of the gospel according to John. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 14. And the point of this verse, the thesis here, is that because Jesus dwelled among us and now dwells within us, our lives should be transformed by him and should reflect more and more of him. 
So let's look at verse 14 here. And we're not even going to get the whole thing done today. Verse 14. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The two most common errors that people make when they are trying to formulate an understanding of Jesus is to either downplay his complete humanity or to downplay his complete divinity. The biblical view of Jesus, what John has already shared with us, is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Up until this point, he's, he's primarily been concerned with making sure that we understand the deity of Christ. That's, that's been his emphasis up until this point. He's told us that in the beginning, the Word was there. He's told us that the Word was with God, and indeed, the Word was God. He's told us that all the things that have come into being have come through this Word the Lord Jesus Christ. He's told us that this word is the source of physical and spiritual life and of physical and spiritual light. So there's been this heavy, heavy emphasis in the first 13 verses on the deity or the the divinity of Jesus. But here in verse 14, John presents us with another very important aspect of Christ that is absolutely vital to our understanding of Him, telling us that Jesus Christ is fully man. He's fully God, and He is fully man. He has not always been fully man. He didn't begin His existence when He was born or when He was conceived in His mother's womb. No, He became fully human. He took on flesh even though he existed for all of eternity because he is also fully God. And there's an aspect of of beautiful mystery to this, but the Word of God clearly tells us this. John says in very clear language, and the Word became flesh. This is one of those verses that you should put a star next to or that you should underline or highlight or something like that. It's a verse that you would do really well to memorize. So important is this one verse. Uh, You might say that it sums up the entire reason that John even wrote his testimony. It's because of this one verse, what what we see in this one sentence that the gospel, uh, according to, to John, was even written. This is not only the foundation of this book, but this is the foundation of all true Christianity. If you're going to understand how to escape the eternal fires of God's eternal judgment in hell, it has to start with this fundamental truth that Jesus is fully God and that He is fully man. If you believe something other than that about Jesus... You believe in a false Jesus. And the quickest way to a false gospel is to have a false Jesus. And if you have a false gospel, it will not save you. So what a horrible thing, if you think about it. How many times have you heard that Jesus took on flesh? We hear it all the time, right? Especially around Christmas time, which we're coming up on a little bit more than two months away. But what a horrible thing it would be for us to to read and hear this truth, to read and hear this verse so many times that it would no longer impact us, that it would no longer strike us as deeply, deeply profound. What a horrible thing it would be to become so familiar with this verse that it would no longer even fill our minds and hearts with awe and wonder at the fact. What a horrible thing it would be if hearing or reading that God took on flesh would be no more significant to us than an airplane flying by or a car driving by. I mean, do you realize how complicated, how amazing it is to have an airplane fly? (laughs) I mean, these things are are tons, and and it's floating up in the air. Do you understand how amazing that is? And yet we see it, and and maybe even we experience it so many times that it tends to lose its wonder. 
Of course, it's the same with cars driving by. Cars are amazing. If you think about how complicated it is to make a, a, a piece of metal that, that weighs a ton roll around on wheels wherever we want it to take us. It's amazing, and yet it is so mundane because we become desensitized to it. We see it so much, we hear it so much that we just take it for granted, and we, we stop even noticing it all around us. And with this verse, we're reminded so often, at Christmas if no other time, that God took on flesh, that God became a man. And we're reminded of this so often, I fear that we are no longer smitten by the profundity of it, by the wondrous mystery of it. It is an amazing and astounding thing that God would enter into human history as one of us in the midst of people who are just like you and just like me, and that he would thereby reveal the glory of God. What a wonderful thing. In the days of Israel's wanderings through the wilderness, it was a beautiful thing that God would dwell in the midst of his people as they journeyed. But the point that John is making for us here is that something far better has happened for God's people now in Christ Jesus. And we can be sure that John is intentionally trying to make this connection between Jesus and the Israelites wandering through the wilderness because he uses a really interesting word in our text. Our text says this, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt. Among us. Well, literally, this clause that reads, and dwelt among us, uh, would read, uh, and dwelt in a tent. To, to dwell in a tent. The Greek word is skenao. If John wanted to tell us that the word simply lived among us, he would have used the word oikeo. These are two very different words. So why is it that John uses the word that he uses? Well, the word that he uses, according to Strong's Bible Dictionary, means to abide or live in a tabernacle or tent. To abide or live in a tabernacle or tent. So if we were to translate what John said literally, word for word, I mean, we'd have to start making up new words, which is what we'll do today. Uh, literally translated, it would say, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So there's no question that John is referring to something very specific, and that is the tabernacle in the Old Testament that accompanied the Israelites when they journeyed through the wilderness. And that's a great story. One of my favorite stories of the Bible, it always amuses me, is the exodus. The attitudes of the people along the way. What an amazing thing. I mean, the Israelites are, uh, are, are miraculously you know, uh, set free from enslavement and oppression at the hands of the Egyptians by God. And you have roughly two million people as eyewitnesses to this. As eyewitnesses to, to God's saving power with their own eyes. And yet their faith falters along the journey. What should have been a journey that would last about one month ends up taking them 40 years. One month, 40 years. That's a major difference. So in a way, it's kind of comical until we realize that it's actually something of a picture of our sanctification, of our growth in Christ's likeness. And as we journey through this life, we look a lot like the Israelites did. We grumble, we complain, and sin prevents us from making steady progress. So the progress that we do make, and God has ordained that we will make progress, and he will discipline us to make sure that we do, but the progress that we all make is entirely by the grace of God. And yet... Throughout all of their wanderings through the wilderness, the Israelites had a glory that was with them and made them the marvel of the world. They had at the center of their camp this tabernacle, this thing they called the tabernacle. 
And over this tabernacle was a cloud of fire that God provided to guide his people along the journey. And inside of the tabernacle, you would find the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the scriptures, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As Christians, you and I are as prone to wander, you and I are as prone to fail as the Israelites were in their journey through this spiritually dark and barren world. But like the Israelites had the glory of God in their midst to guide them, so too the church, the church invisible, the true church, has the glory of God in her midst in the Lord Jesus Christ. The tabernacle of the Israelites was a tent structure. As you can see from the picture up here, it was a tent structure that was roughly 45 feet long by 15 feet wide. Uh, And it had three sections. It had the outer courtyard. That's where the priests were required to wash themselves uh, before entering and where they would make sacrifices for all who entered. Then there would be an outer room that was referred to as the holy place where you'd find the table of showbread and you'd find um, the incense altar. Uh, and, And then there was the inner room which is commonly referred to as the most holy place or translated more literally, it was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where God himself dwelled. And every last detail of this is significant. In some way or another, every last detail of the tabernacle symbolized or pointed to Christ who is the true and better tabernacle. And while we don't have time for for every parallel, let's consider some of the more obvious and perhaps some of the more significant parallels between the tabernacle that the Israelites had and Christ as our tabernacle who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. So if you're taking notes, there are five points that I want to look at today uh, in which there is a similarity between the two or a parallel between the two. First, let's just talk about the purpose of the tabernacle. What purpose did the tabernacle serve? It was given for Israel's journeying through the wilderness between enslavement and and oppression to the Egyptians and, and the promised land and getting to the promised land. Its purpose was to guide them to their ultimate destination, the promised land, Canaan, the place that represented the, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. And in a spiritual sense, in a parallel sense, just like the wilderness was not home for the Israelites, this world is not our home. We don't belong here in a permanent sense. We're just passing through it on our way to the fulfillment of God's promises in heaven. So what do you cling to in this world, in this life, that you shouldn't? What guides you? What guides your decisions other than Christ, other than the Word of God? And the question then is, what can you do to cast away any other guiding influences in your life? Because by God's grace, if you are in Christ, you can. You can cast it away. You can be guided by Christ if you are in Christ. Indeed, you must, because nothing and no one but Christ will guide you to the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. And if we don't choose to cast these things away, we can be sure if we are true children of God, that God will discipline us in order that we will cast those things away. Secondly, the tabernacle was at the very center of the camp of the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 2, we see that this is exactly how God designed it to be. In verse 17 of Numbers chapter 2, God gives this instruction. He says, Then the tent of meeting, talking about the tabernacle, shall be set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. The word midst can also be translated as middle. Uh, In fact, that's how many translations read when they translate this verse. 
And in a fuller sense, in, in, a, in a parallel sense, for the Christian, Jesus Christ serves the same purpose. And that purpose is fulfilled as Christ is placed at the very center of all true expressions of Christianity. See, we're so inclined, we're so, we're so tempted to put other things at the center of, of, our, of our lives, of our, uh, of our gathering together corporately. So, so both corporately and individually, we're so tempted to put something else other than Jesus at the center. We're tempted to put, uh, to put humanity at the center. We're tempted to put pop psychology at the center. We're, we're, we're tempted to put cultural trends uh, front and center of our journey and of, of our understanding of the world and all that is true. But for God's people, for Christianity, Jesus alone belongs at the center of everything that we do and everything that we are. Can that be said of you? Can you truly say that Jesus is at the center of your life? Is he found at the center of all that you do, all that you believe, everything that you hope, everything that you aspire for, everything you hope for? Because that's where he belongs. And it's so easy for us to think, well, I'll come back to it and put something else in his rightful place. It's something that we're all inclined to do. It's something that we all do. And by God's grace, we learn to do otherwise. We learn to put Jesus at the center. Third, look at this picture of the, of the tabernacle. It's a, it's a pretty... Um, lowly looking thing consider how humble it appears the tabernacle itself was not exactly an impressive work of architecture or anything i mean compare it to to where they had come from where where the israelites had come from 400 years in egypt and they have these pyramids there that are just amazing right Compare it to that, or or compare it to some of the pagan temples of the ancient world. Compare it to the the finest architectural centers of worship in the world today. The tabernacle doesn't exactly appear glorious or remarkable in comparison, does it? I mean, the tabernacle was just a tent. It was made of hides. There was nothing in the appearance of the tabernacle that we would find appealing. There was nothing in the way that the the tabernacle looked that would make us say, hey, I want to go check this out. There's nothing in the appearance that would draw us to it. And the same was true of Jesus. A.W. Pink, in his commentary, says, To the unbelieving gaze of Israel, he had no form or comeliness. And when they beheld him, their unanointed eyes saw saw in him no beauty that they should desire him. End quote. And that's a pretty accurate assessment. That's a, a pretty good summarization of what Isaiah had also prophesied, right? Isaiah 53 verse 2 says of this coming Messiah, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So what is it, if Jesus is so humble in appearance, if there's nothing appealing that would draw us to him, why do people, why does anyone, why did we get drawn to him? By the Father's will. Only by the Father's will. Only because the Father draws us to Him. God opens the eyes of our hearts to behold the splendor, the glory, the beauty of Christ. And He gives each of His children a new heart that would seek and desire Him above all earthly treasure. So we would look at something like this tabernacle and say, wow, this is more majestic than anything that could be built by man or designed by man. So we're so tempted to think that all that that glory entails is shiny and and beautiful physically and, and gold and glittery. But in Christ, God has revealed that that's not how glory works. True glory is seen in humble service and complete devotion and obedience to the will of God. Fourth, 
The tabernacle is where God dwelt among the Israelites. Within the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim made of gold, and their wings stretched out over the cover of the Ark. And between the wings of the cherubim was what you referred to as the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory, which uh, essentially symbolized God's presence there. The word Shekinah simply means radiance. The Shekinah glory was a light that symbolized God's presence among the Israelites, in the Israelite camp. And this is what Christ is for the Christian in a far more fuller sense, far, far fuller sense. He doesn't just represent or symbolize that God is with us. No, He is with us. He is God with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. And look at how John connects this concept to Christ. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says of Christ, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. That verse alone eliminates any possibility that He was not fully God. That He was finite. If he, how can something that is finite be an exact representation of that which is infinite? You see how ridiculous that is? It's impossible. So we see again, Jesus is fully God and fully man. This Word who in the beginning was with God and indeed was God and who is the source of all physical and spiritual life and light, He is the true light and His glory is made known to all who will cast aside their own efforts to earn their way to heaven, to escape God's judgment and will simply trust in Christ alone for their salvation. His glory is revealed to such a person. And of course, John does mean this in a couple different ways. He means it in a, in, a, in a very literal sense. They did see his glory in a unique way that we, won't, that we don't see in this life on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke tells us in uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, that Jesus took along Peter and, John's, and, and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And if you skip down to verse 32, you read, Now Peter and his companions, so John is among them, Peter, James, and John. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So in one sense, John means that he saw the glory of Christ in this instance, in a a very physical sense. But even before that, he had seen it in a spiritual sense, which is the way that everyone today who trusts in Christ alone for salvation beholds his glory. The story uh, John tells about Christ's first miracle involves Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And John's testimony of that story ends like this in John 2.11. He says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this is why Jesus came. To reveal the glory of God, to manifest his glory that we may believe, that men and women may behold his glory and believe on him alone for salvation. And so there's a sense in which you and I today see the glory of Christ, even now, 2,000 years later, isn't there? The greatest miracle is the miracle of regeneration. When God takes somebody who was dead in sin and unbelief, and he gives them a new heart. He, he, he grants them repentance and faith and they believe and receive life in Christ even though they were dead. And the glory of Christ is displayed in this miracle. As our lives are transformed more and more and more into the likeness of Christ, the glory of Christ is displayed. 
Paul said this to the Corinthians, chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a, manner, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, saying we are seeing the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So let me ask you, does this testify to the ongoing work of God in your life? Does it testify to the work of the God who tabernacled among us? Has Christ made a difference in your life? And is He continuing to make a difference in your life? Do you see Him teaching you to hate the things that you used to love before you knew Him, before you believed in Him? And do you see Him teaching you to love the righteousness that the unregenerate natural man hates? Have you been drawn to Christ in such a way that you will love Him and follow Him and serve Him and glorify Him in all that you do, no matter what the cost is? Because that's what we're called to in Christ. And so this is the experience of every believer of every Christian. We behold His glory, although as in a dimly lit mirror. And the sight of Him changes us. It transforms us. But one day we will see Him face to face. And it will be then that we become like Him. It will be then that our sin nature is completely mortified, not by our works, but by Christ. And our salvation will be complete. John would say this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He said, Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. There's a mystery there. How's that going to happen? I don't know. But if you're in Christ, you're going to find out when it happens. The tabernacle was where God dwelt among the Israelites. Today, even now, we gather in the presence of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. We come to praise Him. We come to worship Him. We come to present ourselves as living sacrifices to Him, imperfect though we may be. But here's the question. Because every single one of us in here has failed to uphold the law. Every single one of us in here has failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every single one of us in here has failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's just in the last hour. Never mind before that. So how can we do this? How can we draw near to God? How can sinful, fallen, corrupt humanity dare to approach God to worship Him. And this is the, this is the question of, of all questions. This is the greatest human dilemma that we face. We are unholy and unrighteous through and through, and God is perfectly holy and dwells in unapproachable light and is perfectly righteous. How can we dare to come near Him? Think about it this way. If you go into a king's house and he's got new floors and you have mud on your shoes, do you dare to step in? Do you dare to dwell, to to, to draw near to the king in his house with your muddy shoes? How dare we draw near to God? And the answer is found in the fifth and final similarity that we'll be looking at today between the tabernacle and Christ, and that is that the tabernacle was also the only place where an acceptable sacrifice unto God could be made. For the Israelites, the tabernacle was the place of worship. They would gather together at the tabernacle. They would present their gifts and their offerings uh, to God there. They would be taught there. They would be ministered to there. But before they could even draw near to the tabernacle, a sacrifice was required. 
James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, In the outer part of the tabernacle, on the east side, near the only opening into the courtyard, stood the brazen altar on which sacrifices burned continually. For anyone approaching the tabernacle from outside, this was the first of the furnishings of the tabernacle seen by him. End quote. And why? What was the significance of that? It reminded every single person that would dare to draw near to the tabernacle that no one may approach God without the shedding of blood and a sacrificial offering. In Leviticus 17.11, God says this. He says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the, bl- uh, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And then the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In a fuller sense, we understand that only Christ's perfect, unblemished sacrifice can atone for sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 reminds us that it is impossible for the blood of animals to satisfy God. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The point being that today there is only one way to approach the one true living God. And that is by the atonement that was made by Jesus Christ. The animals that were slaughtered and sacrificed by the Israelites entering the tabernacle was a foreshadowing. It was a a living illustration, a picture of the fact that the wage of sin is death. And it foreshadowed the reality that we need a perfect sacrifice to be offered once and for all. To stand in the place of sinners before God, bearing the wrath and bearing the death that we deserve and doing it as our substitute in our place. Jesus, our perfect tabernacle, who tabernacled among us, is the only sacrifice that God will accept in the place of fallen, wretched sinners. Christ alone is the Lamb of the world, or the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, thus enabling all who are in Him to draw near. Because we have no right to draw near to God on our own merit. We're like servants with mud all over us walking into the king's palace. Except times a million. And because we can't do that, because we can't draw near to God on our own merit, we must have the merit of Christ imputed, transferred to us. And we draw near on his merit, not ours. So let's go back and look at and respond to the questions from the survey, or some of the questions from this survey that was done by Ligonier Ministry. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Agree or disagree? Disagree, right. No, we are fallen by nature. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned against God and are only worthy of eternal damnation. See, we don't come to Christ because we, we need help being better people. We come to Christ because we're dead and we need life because sin has only earned us death. That's our merit. That's what we deserve is death and eternal conscious torment in hell. Next question. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Agree or disagree? Disagree. No, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It is impossible for a created being to have created all things that were created. The idea that Jesus existed prior to Himself to make sure that He existed 
is not only illogical, but it is heresy. It is damnable heresy. Next question. And this will be the last one we look at. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. No. No, the person who agrees with this cannot possibly even begin to understand why we needed God to take on flesh and dwell among us, why we need Jesus to begin with. Because religion without Jesus is the most dangerous, the most deadly, the most damnable of sins. Because it only leaves us with faith in something other than the only sacrifice that can atone for sins. Maybe that's trusting in our, our own good works, or in, in our own goodness, in our, in our sincerity, in, the, the, in how genuine we, we are trying, how, how uh, sincere we are in, in trying to please God. No, on, on, on whose merit does the worshiper of a false god draw near to the one true living God? The only way to draw near to God is through the shedding of Christ's own blood. Because in Christ alone, as Paul says to the Ephesians, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. The author of Hebrews tells us that only Christ is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But know this, you you cannot draw near to God and remain the same. As surely as Christ came and tabernacled among us, he now tabernacles within everyone who has repented and placed saving faith in him, who has trusted on him alone for salvation, giving us the faith to believe, giving us the strength to to follow him, giving us the power and the desire to be transformed, to deny ourselves, to live and to serve him sacrificially, to obey what he commands, and to thereby present ourselves as living sacrifices. See, friends, by by nature, people don't, not only can they not do that, they don't want to do that. And yet that is the calling that is placed on every single one of us who are in Christ. And that's not only our calling. That should be our longing. That should be our desire. And it is the highest, and it is the greatest calling in the entire universe. And it's only possible because Christ took on flesh, tabernacled among us, revealing the truth about God and revealing his glory to us. To him alone who was fully God and fully man, who shed his blood in the stead of ruined, wretched, unworthy sinners who would repent and believe on him alone for salvation. To him alone be all glory. Because Jesus took on flesh and dwelled among us and now dwells within us, our lives should be increasingly transforming by him and should reflect more and more of him. Let's pray. Our most gracious God, Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to be our tabernacle, to be among us, and even now by the power of the Holy Spirit to be within us. And our Father, we confess to you in the silence of our hearts how tempted we are by all the glitter and glamour and sparkly things in this world. And how sometimes we forget the necessity of having heavenly treasure rather than earthly treasure. 
So forgive us. Forgive us for taking things like the incarnation for granted. Forgive us for the times that we see obedience to you as optional. Forgive us for the times that we pursue things that we shouldn't and do things that offend you. We thank you that you have presented the one true sacrifice for all times in the Lord Jesus Christ to atone for sin. And we pray that as we draw near to you that we would not remain the same. We don't want to remain the same. We want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And it's only by your grace that we even desire that. So teach us, O Lord, to walk in your ways Teach us, O Lord, to put Christ at the center of our lives. Not just today as we gather, but every day as we disperse. That Christ would be glorified. And that we would be changed. And reflect more of him. That he would increase and we would decrease. For the honor and glory of Christ. In his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.